he always looked like he was relaxed. He was sincere in the fact that you were a driver and he was happy to see you. Those are the words of John Strong talking to Overdrive Editorial Director Max Heine. Strong, based today in New Jersey and recently retired from the road, was talking about Overdrive Magazine's founder and original editor and publisher, Mike Parkhurst, along the way to spelling out some clear recollections along his long road through trucking and uh, Parkhurst in the 1970s and beyond. His encounters with Overdrive's founder included, included a trip to the House of Representatives in the mid-1970s, and a visit to Overdrive's then Los Angeles office later. I'm Todd Dills. You're listening to the March 8, 2019 edition of the Overdrive Radio Podcast, and you can catch Max Heine's distillation of owner-operator Strong's recollection in yesterday's post to the Overdrive Extra blog. That's overdriveonline.com slash overdrive hyphen extra. In this edition, though, we'll hear more from the owner-op directly about his time trucking and the old Mass 10 truck stop, about differing levels of success so many have seen in efforts to organize owner-operators into a force for large-scale change, and more. When Strong mentions the ITA, FYI, he's talking about Parkhurst's Independent Truckers Association, active for a good bit of his time publishing Overdrive through 1986. Here's Strong detailing his start in the business as a moving van helper before his time behind the wheel. I was actually a helper lugging furniture when I was 18, a summer job when I was going to college funny how they got started too because they used to watch the driver everything he did what with the clutch the the shifting pattern everything and then back then we used to go load some household goods and on the way back stop stop at a bar or stop somewhere on the way back to the barn today we stopped in trenton and we had something to eat at two or three o'clock in the afternoon had a couple of beers and just as a gag, when we went out of the bar, I got in behind the wheel. And the guy that was the driver that day, he knew me pretty well. He said, oh, you want to drive? Here are the keys. And it was a Mac H67. And I had watched the guy when he drove, and I knew where all the gears were. So I fired it up, released the brakes, put it in gear, and drove back to the barn. It was only like five miles. Well, he went in and told the boss, heavy can drive. Give them a steering wheel. So what did they do? They put me to work as a driver. That was the, the Allied Van Lines agent. That was the first driving job. I started going coast to coast back around 76 when the, the oil embargo started to take effect. and Got to meet Mike, meet Mike Parkhurst and some of the crew. Got involved with the ITA for a little while. And Mike Parkhurst always had in the magazines when you come to Los Angeles, call us. So a friend of mine was with me. We went out to Los Angeles. I called up the offices, and they said, come on over. I already knew Mike Parkhurst, but he brought us in, showed us around, treated us like royalty. You know, the original truck shutdowns brought some of the, uh, the overdrive ITA overdrive people out. The first uh, time I met Mike, I told him I was from Yardley, Pennsylvania, and he remembered the bridge that used to be in Yardley. But he more or less knew me, remembered me because he drove across that bridge that was washed out in 55. He took us through the uh, the overdrive offices, and my buddy and I both had fairly long dark hair and 
bushy beards, and that's why Roger remembered us. The character that's supposedly holding a coffee cup, that was my buddy we called Bluto. B-L-U-T-O, just like uh, Popeye's nemesis. That was more or less training him. What do you remember about Mike? He always looked like he was relaxed. He was sincere in the fact that you were a driver and he was happy to see you. I was kind of surprised, though, that I met Mike just that one time. And then the next time he saw me, after all the people he had met, he still remembered me. Yeah, he had, he had a great memory. Uh, it just came. He just came across as a really decent human being, and he would he would he was ready to fight, yeah, fight on the driver's behalf for everything he thought we should have. He had such a tough time when he was trucking, and he knew what we were going through, and he just knew all about it. He was behind the American truck driver 100. percent Well, Mike was one of those guys that when you talk to him. And he was focused on it. He felt like you were the most important person he was talking to that day. Well, there was another outfit up in uh, Massachusetts, the Mass 10 truck stop. It used to be known as the dump. And the, the truck stop was the pits. You didn't want to eat there. You didn't even want to buy fuel there. It was so expensive. But if you were a regular and you got stuck there for a weekend, the guy who owned the dump, at a cottage on a lake, and he would take the drivers up there and stay at the cabin. And Parkhurst always had pictures of this group on some weekend spending it up there in Massachusetts, out on the lake, in the boat, having a great time. The thing I remember about those pictures of these guys in the boats, they're, they're always trying to hold their stomachs in. I used to pass through up there and stop in at the dump, but I never spent a weekend up there. It was too close to home. That was closed down years ago. and I don't remember the name of the guy who ran it, but there was one weekend that uh, there was a, Mike had organized a, a march on Washington, and the guy from up there at Mass 10 had gone down. We walked, went to the, uh, the House of Representatives, went to see a few of the representatives complain about the, the rising fuel prices and the speed limits. That had to be 75, because that was after the first uh, embargo, after we got the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. And I'm pretty sure that's when I met Mark, Mike Parkhurst. And he mm, recognized yeah. regardless, but I told him where I was from. And we had a uh, had an audience with one of the, the representatives, and the guy chaired a committee, the House Ways and Means Committee, and he came in to talk to us. Didn't have much of an effect on what was going on, but <laughs> made us feel good. More or less stayed in touch with those people from then on. A few years later, when uh, the OOIDA hadn't yet got started, but the, the shutdowns were happening all over the country, there was going to be, be yeah. a meeting of an outfit called Fraternal Association of Steel Haulers, FASH. And Mike had sent me a a tape recorder. He wanted me to record what was going on at the meeting. So when I recorded everything, you couldn't understand a word anybody said. That the technology wasn't good enough. That that meeting didn't didn't develop anything. Because owner operators, they'll join an organization, but they all work for themselves. So trying right. to organize truck drivers back then was a, a fool's errand. I know that's not the first time we've heard that, is it? 
Thanks to John Strong for the history and his memory. A window on a past that is increasingly relevant to today, no doubt. Shifting gears, as it were, I wanted to share a little more of my conversation with expedited carrier Load 1's John Elliott. This portion of it centered on opportunities and plenty of challenges of the uh, very specific cargo van expediting niche. Cargo vans are regulated in the under 10,000 pound category and thus do not require drivers to have a CDL or to keep log books or use ELDs. Aren't required, they aren't required to cross scales, can be parked with plenty ease and, and more. They, they seem to check the boxes as a solution to a lot of the headaches Class 8 tractor trailer owner ops deal with as long as they're not hauling placable, placable hazmat load, in which case they're regulated more or less just like the bigger trucks. And that's not to mention the uh, lower cost barriers to entry into the market as well, with much lower new vehicle purchase prices, uh, better fuel mileage, and more. At once, though, challenges abound. In the conversation that follows, Elliot describes the multitude of those in detail from his perspective. Here, he starts with detail on a couple different directions drivers take when coming to the cargo van, from newbies viewing it as a uh, modest point of entry to the work of driving to more seasoned trucking veterans downsizing for a myriad of different reasons. You know, you, you see you see two different directions with it. You'll see drivers who um, new to the industry who look at it as an entry point um, to be, become a driver or an owner-operator. Um, possibly it's a lower barrier to entry um, because you don't have the, the, the regulatory requirements, the CDL requirements, um, now, depending on your company, um, they don't require DOT physicals. You know, we do um, right, for right. that. You know, we DOT physical, we drug screen test at the same level that we do uh, our regulated drivers. Um, I don't think that that's common in the industry, unfortunately. You also see the second path is you'll have drivers that are in bigger vehicles that decide they're tired of the big vehicle. Now, they don't want the yeah. the hassle of 53 feet behind them anymore, and that um, you know sometimes again older, um, the, the physical limitations of, of driving a big vehicle are different than driving a small vehicle. So we also sure. see that path too coming down. Um, you know, it's an interesting segment of the business because it's a low barrier to entry. Um, I think there's too many vehicles in it. Um, okay. As well, you know, you have the problem of. You know, on supply and demand, I, I think the market for years has had too much supply in the van side. I think most any expedite carrier would, would tell you that. Um, you, you know, you had that, and because of the fact that, unfortunately, because of the fact that it's under 10,001 pounds, it's it's regulated, but it's it's very loosely enforced regulation, for lack of a better term. Because yeah. you see, you know, you take your major carriers in the expedite world, uh, their vehicles run for them. Uh, they're logoed. They have satellites on them. Uh, they're insured, just like the big trucks, with, you know, the trucking insurance and the SAT. Right. Um, you have a lot of small and carriers and uh, multi-carriers who run unmarked vehicles um, and don't, right. don't carry the proper insurance. Um, don't worry about compliance because the odds of an unmarked van getting pulled over by a DOT officer are, are incredibly slim. You know, they, it's it's just not likely to happen. They're not they're not forced to go through scales. That I mean, where for instance, if if a a van is calling uh, a hazmat load over a thousand pounds, well, technically, they have to put placards on the vehicle. They have to run a, a, a log book and be compliant, just like a big vehicle. 
you know, I've listened to plenty of guys who run for multis or independences, and I ask them, well, how do you do that? Who infor- who takes care of your logs? You know, because you run for multiples. Who does that? And they're like, they just laugh. We throw the stuff, paperwork in the back. Nobody nobody ever bothers us who looks. So because of, the, of those things and the, the way the insurance especially, um, you know, again, we, trucking insurance is very expensive. Yep. And that, um, you know, especially with the nuclear uh, <laughs> verdicts coming out of these juries and then, yep. you know, we're an industry that's under attack. When you watch TV commercials or, you know, it's all asbestos, uh, uh, or trucking companies, you know, or talcum powder. You know, you go down the highway. I mean, you see billboards constantly for attorneys. You know, you right. you hit a truck or is a truck hit you? And you just don't see that in other industries. So the insurance is so expensive. Um, so a lot of these guys will simply put car insurance on these vehicles. And, you know, it's it's a big problem in our industry, uh, especially, you know, there's a structure called the multi-carrier. <laughs> and a multi-carrier, okay, for instance, if you take a company like Load 1, we're what's called a traditional carrier. All our vehicles run for us and only run for us. They're all logoed. Um, we provide the liability and the cargo insurance over all the vehicles. So when we when we give a customer or another carrier a copy of our insurance certificate, they they know that that covers every vehicle. They see the coverages, they see the lines of coverages, they see the limits of, you know, how many millions of liability we carry, how much cargo insurance we carry, all that. A multi-carrier, and again, a multi-carrier is a legal model. It, it can be done legally. Yeah. I'm not sure that, uh, I mean, we've seen plenty, plenty, plenty of cases where that is not how it, it's done. Unfortunately, because what happens is in a multi-carrier, they'll have an insurance cert for one vehicle, so they so that they have the proper cert and this that. But then, all the vans that run for them generally are not logoed because you know they can pull for two or three or four or five of these guys, and that so they're not logoed. One, they provide their own insurance. They name, although they're not a trucking company. So they get they get they provide their own insurance, and they'll name the carrier as an additional insured. So what happens is, if I was to give them a load, I I have no way I I, I can validate their insurance that they gave me, but that isn't the insurance that's actually covering the vehicle that's running the load. So if, if a shipper gives one of those guys a load, they assume that that insurance cert they have is the insurance cert that covers the the freight. It's not. It's actually the insurance on the van. Well, the problem is there's no way to see what that insurance is or to monitor it. As a carrier, you know, there's, you know, we, our insurance has to be registered with the DOT. You can go into, you know, the government websites. There's plenty of third-party websites that you can, you know, that will update you instantly every right. day yep. if our insurance is valid or invalid. Well, because they're not, those vans are not motor carriers. There's no registration for that, that insurance. There's no way to see it. There's no way to validate it. And that, or no way it even exists. And a lot of them, <clears throat> just due to the expense, will put car insurance. You know, they'll call their local state farm agent and say, well, yeah, I, what do you do? Oh, I, I, I deliver around town. Oh, okay, they, they, they'll write that. Well, state farm does not write interstate trucking. So what happens is, you know, that guy gets in a terrible accident you know, if there's liability and, and that involved, of course, State Farm, I mean, not even State Farm or any other insurance company is going to say, wait a minute, you were hauling interstate freight 
and you know you're right. based in Dayton, Ohio, and you were in Texas. Whoa, we didn't write that insurance for you. We didn't. That wasn't. You know, so they have the right to to deny the claim based on improper coverage, right. saying, "Hey, we don't. We didn't write that." Um, so then, you know, it goes back up to the carrier's policy. The carrier's policy insurance company is going to say, "Whoa, we didn't write that unit. That unit wasn't on the list that we wrote. We wrote two units that we provided the cert for." You know, so then it comes back on us or back onto the uh, shipper, you know, who chose to use that carrier. You know, so in a lawsuit, so the, it's it's just a mess. Now, I mean, could every one of those vans have proper right trucking insurance? It's entirely possible. Well-known insurance agent and expedited trucking niche, Jelly Benish of uh, CIS, counts some van owner-operators running under a multi-carrier structure among her clients. Like Elliot says, it is possible to do it the right way and ensure adequate liability and cargo coverage. The multi-carrier model for expedited cargo vans arose around the time of the Great Recession, as Benish tells it, with so many van drivers desperate for any way to stay loaded. Under the model, van owner-ops essentially negotiate loads and leased arrangements with a multiplicity of expedited motor carriers. It presents some of the same opportunities and challenges that traditional Class 8 independents wrangle when working with multiple brokers on the spot freight market, without the need for the van operators to have motor carrier authority, hence the insurance monitoring issue Elliott notes. Many of such van owner-operators, though, like the independence of it, Benish says, and, quote, believe that they make more money hauling for multiple companies. Some motor carriers, quote, have come to respect it in some cases because of the current litigious climate regarding the independent contractor model, end quote. Leasing with multiple carriers is an obvious sign of such contractors' independence of carrier direction and control. However, Benish goes on to note, quote, larger, more established motor carriers on the traditional structure the exclusive lease to one motor carrier, really, quote-unquote, hate it. John Elliott with Lobe 1, one of those traditionally structured, structured expedited motor carriers, points to disadvantages other than just the insurance issue he described, too, though, in what effectively becomes an artificial, false impression of supply in the market, putting downward pressure on rates. Here he is continuing with the insurance angle, giving the hypothetical example of a multi-leased owner-op who decides to reduce his insurance coverage without telling the carriers he's working with. Given the van owner-op doesn't have authority on file... Even if that guy had the right insurance, if that if he canceled it tomorrow, we would never know. You know, <laughs> I, okay. you know these, guys will, these guys will talk online and blogs and this ad and how they get around things. And even if their company tries to do it right, I've seen these guys are okay, they'll go get the million-dollar policy and the $100,000 cargo. They get a cert for uh, their uh, carrier they're hauling for, then the next day, they just call the insurance company and lower their limits down. Give me 100000 liability. Give me 10000 cargo. Well, you didn't cancel the policy, so their carrier's never going to know. You know, and they, you'll see them online. Hey, that's all I, here's how I save money, you know, this, that. And it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things of it's, you know, so it was bad. So, and then on top of that, unfortunately, that model, it drives down rates because it, it creates artificial supply. Okay, a lot of those companies, you know, a lot of expedited freight is done through third-party bid boards. So what will happen is, if Joe here in this van, let's say he he hauls for three carriers, so he delivers in Dallas, Texas, he lets all three know, hey, I'm empty in Dallas, ready to go. So let's say we have a van there, and and this van is there. You know, you could have uh, let's say 
Ford Motor Company uses a third-party bid board system or provider. So they put a load up there in Dallas. Well, now instead of two vans and two carriers are going to bid on that load, now what's going to happen is we're going to bid on that load, and three guys are going to bid on that load for the one van. <laughs> it's the load. It's the lowest rate. So right. you created a supply-demand that said four bids for one load versus yeah. two bids for one load. You know, and again, these guys think, well, I move, I move, I, I can't be right. I'm like, you move at the lowest rate. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like, even when you win among your three carriers, you got the load from the three of them, uh, out of the three of them, the one who went the lowest. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's self-defeating. Yeah, this problem is really, it's really prevalent in the vans because they're not, because they're not regulated. You don't have stickers on the side of them. You don't have satellite units in a lot of these guys, you know, the multis run for multiples, don't have to, don't do that. Because yeah. who's going to pay for a satellite? Who's going to monitor or control it? There's three carriers. You know, they're not going to say, let's share it, you know, kind of thing. It doesn't work that way. So it, it's really, it's really the van world. But again, because I, I, I think nobody anticipated the explosion of the amount of people that would be rogue and cheat on it. And it, and, People didn't realize that it was going to be able to be monitored and that. So I think it's like it's like anything. It was good intentions out the gate, and I think that it was an interesting model, um, but it it turned ugly over time. You know, unfortunately, it only takes one or two bad apples, and it just started multiplying. And again, there's and there's it, good ones out there that do it right. You know, unfortunately, it for us, we tried not to use any of those carriers in that structure solely because of the risk and liability to us. You know, if we spend millions to insure and protect our company, you know, I would ha- I have to have blind faith in a carrier that, okay, I trust that you're going to validate and verify every driver that's running for you, and there isn't a good system to do that for them. So it, it just, for us, it's, it's just not a risk that we're willing to accept to our company and to our shippers. Um, a lot of, you know, well, I'll talk to a lot of shippers about it and they're like, ah, it's fine. It's done. We're good. We got, we got insurance cert from them and they don't understand the complexity of the structure and, and, and really, and, and then what'll happen is so many times I'll have a customer come back to me. Hey, we had the, we had an accident or we had a claim and, you know, uh, we're trying to get hold of this guy's insurance, but they said it didn't cover it. And we have to go to the, the guy who had the van and of course, you know, the guy who had the van. You know, one guy. He doesn't have a claims department. He's not. He's got. He's a guy who had a bad accident. Told of his van. Um, does he want to talk to anyone? No. He's probably scared. He's going to get sued. He's not going to help anybody. In that. Right. <laughs> and you know, they'll be like, John, is this what you were talking about? I'm like, yes, this is exactly what we were talking about. And told you could happen. Um, you know, we've seen some ugly cases with customers. In that, with it. But again, a lot of times it's well, the rate was really cheap. I'm like, could you match that rate? It's like, no. We we pay you know, three, four, five times more in, in insurance than what they pay. You know, so I can't, there isn't a way for us to do that. As is somewhat analogous to the Class 8 general freight spot market, uh, Elliot notes a significant downside to running in a cargo van, no matter what structure you're in as an owner-operator or carrier. When times get tough in the economy, opportunity for a healthy profit can take a big hit. Definitely money to be made in it. Um, okay. When it's but it's busy, and then you know, unfortunately, when it's slow, it's it's a hard segment because when it gets slow, um, you know, a lot of those multi carriers go really low on the rates to keep them moving. They don't have 
they don't have the, the overhead and, and the, the expenses, so they don't always look at the cost the same. You know, a lot of them are factoring their money, so, hey, I need to <laughs> move some freight today, even if it's bad choices, because I need to get that factory money in the next day or two so I can make payroll on Friday. You know, they're not sitting with receivables on the street and, and long-term cash flow. You know, so it's just right. a different animal. Right. I mean, I would, I would have a hard time recommending to anyone that I think it's a good segment of the industry in the last year or two to jump into. In fact, you don't have to have the, the CDL and the training. Um, you see so many guys that go out and they buy the, these used yellow Penske trucks. Um, another good example we see all the time. They haul too much weight over the capacity, so they're running at well over 10,000 pounds, but because they don't, they're not required to go through the scale, they don't get caught very often. And that, I mean, one of my one of my favorites are you'll see the guys with the Penske vans or Penske trucks, little box trucks, which are under CDL limit. Um, but they have dualies on the back. Well, if you have dual tires, that vehicle is over ten thousand pounds generally. And that yeah. they'll have stickers, but they'll have stickers made for the door that says under ten thousand GVW. <laughs> like they'll put it big on the side, so that way if a copy pulls up alongside, they're like, oh, under ten thousand. Look at that. And it's like uh, right. no, they'll, they'll have. Yeah, they'll have 8,000 pounds. They actually hurt the straight truck world because they steal loads that really should be on regulated straight trucks. And they'll overload these vans and bust the axles out or you know get in accidents because those vehicles aren't rated to, to handle that kind of weight. At the same time, there are plenty of van owner-operators and small fleet owners who found their niche there and are making plenty of money. If you're one of them, find me via my Channel 19 blog at overdriveonline.com slash channel19 and drop me a note. We'll have further coverage of the cargo van niche among expediters in the April issue of Overdrive Magazine. And until then, thanks for listening. I'm Rops. That's all for this week. Stay pro out there. <laughs>